Yeah, what, what happened with Children's Church is Nick Brown, one of our deacons who also teaches Children's Church, ripped his ACL and MCL yesterday skiing. It will require surgery. And so in other news, we are going to have the first Grace and Peace Walker race between Amanda, Nick, and my wife. <laughs> and um, the winner gets uh, ibuprofen. <laughs> All right. Um, if you have a Bible, please open it to Acts chapter, uh, we're going to be in 432 through 516, but the first verses we'll, we read is going to be 5, 1 through 11. Now, I, I want to tell you guys up front, um, this is going to be some spicy cuisine today. Uh, this is a difficult text. I don't think, I've never met a person who's like, oh, the story of Ananias and Sapphira, my favorite um, it's kind of like leg day at the gym. Uh, may, maybe people aren't excited for it, but you need it. The, this, this text, my goal is that we, would, we could all have some relief concerning this text because it is pretty shocking. It is pretty uh, disequilibriating. And in an, ideally, that at the end of this, that we would see, actually, this teaches us something about God that we need, that this is actually a blessing. All right, let's, uh, let's just rip the band-aid off and go right for it. This is Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. It says, But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Let's pray together. God, I, I pray that you would give us the grace to understand this difficult part of your word, and that in so doing, you would grow us up more in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. You may have some questions after that text, like, what the heck? Um, also, what the heck? And most importantly, huh? <laughs> It seems like God is just kind of waiting for people to step a toe out of line so he can strike them dead, or that God is capricious, or God is mean, and that Peter had, had a gangster way of telling Sapphira that she blew it too, right? What is going on in this text? And how does it fit with the rest of the story that we've seen about the the amazing, life-giving, world-healing message of the gospel going forth. 
Well, those of you who have been with me in the How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth class, we've done this a couple times, you're going to know the first question we ask. If we want to understand this text, what do we first have to do? We have to look at the context. What comes before it? What comes after? Okay, so I'm going to tell you what comes before it is one of the summary statements of Acts. You get these every so often in Acts. It pulls out to 20,000 feet and says, this is what was going on with the community. This is what the Holy Spirit was doing. So you have a summary statement just before, and then you have a summary statement just after. All right, so the first thing we're going to do is we're going to take a look at these two summary statements in which the story of Ananias and Sapphira is sandwiched in. All right, look back with me at chapter 4, verse 32. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. So, wait, what did that just say? This early Christian community, they were united in one heart and soul. They were together, so much so that they didn't consider their own property as being just theirs, but belonging to all. Verse 33, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Now, if you remember from last week, they were threatened with persecution for sharing the gospel. What are they doing? Sharing the gospel publicly. So this is a unified community. This is a community with great courage sharing the gospel with great danger to themselves. Look at verse 34 now. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, does this mean they were selling the roofs from their own heads? No. What you had in the ancient world is you would have a very thin crust of very wealthy people and lots and lots of poor, as has been the case through most of the world. And so this would have been people owned multiple properties, fields, houses, uh, estates, and the like. And the, the, actually, the verbs there don't, don't mean that everybody sold everything all the time. But what it does mean is that many people sold what they had whenever there was need. Okay, so this is radical generosity where the wealthy consider it their responsibility to care for the poor. They don't say, oh, that's your problem that you're poor. This sounds cool. <laughs> this sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? That, that they're not thinking to themselves, how can I hang on to what I've got, but how can I meet the needs of my brother's and sisters, so that there is not poor among us. Actually, you know, there's a, there's a bit of the Old Testament in the book of Deuteronomy where God, this is how God drew up community. When we look back, just listen real quick, at Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 4, it says this, it says, but there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. So the, we, we never saw Israel actually take care of their own, where the rich were generous, faithfully generous, and self-sacrificially generous. When does it happen? It happens when the community of Christ begins. 
This community is beautiful. This community is what the church is supposed to look like. Now, now we're going to take a look at the summary statement. Actually, I missed a little bit of it because they give you a, a particular story here. Verse 36 says, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, he comes in later in the story too, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So they give a specific instance of someone who did this. Now let's skip to the other side and look at the second summary statement, starting in 512. Everybody tracking if you have a Bible. Okay, listen to this. It says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. portico. Please make a mental note of Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. What, what that means is that the reputation of this community for their courage under persecution, for their, their unity, for their care for the poor, their reputation in Jerusalem, people are too scared to join the church, but they're like, that's what it's supposed to look like. These Jews who knew their Bibles are saying these people are the ones who were truly living faithfully before God. It says, and more, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they, car they, they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. We don't know if that actually worked, but they tried. The people also gathered from towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So the, the Holy Spirit's doing a special work even of healing in this community. And what's happening? It says not only in Jerusalem, but from outside of Jerusalem. The reputation of this community, the beauty of this community is doing what? It's adding rocket fuel to the spread of the gospel. It, people are saying they really have it going on here. These followers of Jesus, that's what it's supposed to look like. This community is beautiful. And the beauty of this community helps the spread of the message. That's what these two summary statements around it say. The question for you guys and for, for me, how did they get that way? By accident? Why is this community beautiful? Well, there's a special ingredient here. It's kind of like, um, you know, there is no argument that the funkiest band of all time is Parliament. Um, if you got... There's no, no, I, I, won't, I won't brook any debate on this. The issue's decided. Parliament's the funkiest band ever, and it's not close. They kind of invented, <laughs> that's right. They invented the funk sound, the funk style. They had a spaceship on stage. They couldn't be any cooler, right? Do you know why Parliament was so funky? It's because George Clinton was so funky, the man who put it together, this dude right here. Okay, but Bootsy Collins tells a story, the bass player, of when he first met George Clinton, the man who made Parliament. He said he, uh, he was in a nightclub, and he was introduced to George Clinton at the back of this nightclub, and he looks down, and George Clinton is sitting like cross-legged, you know, in a dark nightclub with dark sunglasses on, dressed in nothing but a sheet, half of his head shaved, and half of his head exploding in this riot of like colored braids. And Bootsy Collins looked at him and said, 
oh, this dude is gone. <laughs> it doesn't get further out than him. So why was Parliament the way it was? It's because George Clinton is the way he is. Parliament is an expression of the soul of George Clinton. Make sense? You take George Clinton out of Parliament, what do you have? Probably still good musicians, but not as funky. Why is this community beautiful? It's because God is holy. What we see just before that first summary statement is they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And when God's character, when his holiness is expressed in community, it is beautiful. Everybody track with that? Without the holiness of God, you don't have this beautiful community. And it stands to reason. If you want a community like this, you know what you need? Integrity, yeah? If you have a bunch of scurrilous liars with no integrity, do you have that community? If you have a bunch of people who are me first, me first, me first, who, who, who believe in oppressing the poor and all that, do you have that community? No. This, the beauty of this community requires the holiness of God, and God's holiness is beautiful. Just imagine with me right now. What if we could get this back? What if this was the stuff the church was known for right now? Unity, not backbiting and division. Integrity, not scandals and cover-ups of scandals. Generosity and care for the poor, not selfishness and Ayn Rand says get a job. What if that's what the church was known for? What would that do for the witness of the church? <laughs> People would be a lot more open to hearing the good news of the gospel, yeah? You know what we need? We need the holiness of God for that. So you might be asking yourself, so what does Ananias and Sapphira have to do with this? What do, what do the verses we don't like have to do with the verses we do like? All right? I want to focus your attention on one word. Chapter 5, verse 1, the first word. Look, at, look with me. It says, but... That but is a conjunction. Don't get thrown off by the, by the chapter number. This connects to the previous story. Remember, it's saying all the rich people were being self-sacrificially generous. This dude named Barnabas brought this and laid it at the apostles' feet, but. And then that takes us into Ananias and Sapphira. What did they do? Is it such a big deal? Is God like over his skis with this? Is, is, is God over punishing this particular sin? Well, let, let's take a look at what they did. All right. This was not oops. This was not a moment of weakness. This wasn't succumbing to temptation. This wasn't there was so much pressure on me and I blew it. Okay. This was a con job. This was a con job. This was a long con. Think about this. Peter tells them. You know what they, they could have done instead? Not sold the property. No problem. It's yours. They could have sold the property, kept the money. Peter says, that would have been fine too. They could have sold the property, given part of the money, and said, here's part of the money. Still fine. They could have sold the property, given all the money. Also fine. But what did they do? They sold the property, and the Greek word is actually embezzle for keep back. This was a property that they had promised to the poor. And what did they do? They kept back part of it and said, here is all of it. 
Why would they do such a thing? The only possible motivation for this would be to up your prestige. I mean, imagine if you were present and you're there and people are bringing in a bag of money. Boom, there you go. Like, what, is, what, is, what happens to the opinion of that person in the community? It goes sky high. Look how generous they are. So what did they want to do? They wanted to have the reputation of being super spiritual, super Christ-like, but they didn't want to pay the actual price for it. What's that called? That is called religious hypocrisy. Okay? If you're familiar with the Bible, nothing gets more roundly condemned in the Bible by God than religious hypocrisy. Saying, I want the reputation for spirituality, but I don't want to bother with the reality behind it. That's what they were doing. They were trying to raise their reputation through religious hypocrisy. Now, this is, this is interesting. Where were they doing this? Where were they doing this? There's only one place we're told that the apostles and the disciples gathered at this point in the church, and it was, remember, Solomon's portico. It gets mentioned several times. Where was Solomon's portico? It's probably not something most of us spend much time with. But here's a, a picture of Solomon's portico. All right. Brought a map for you. Totally there. All right, Solomon's portico was right around here. All right, it was a public covered area on the east side of what? What is that? What is that, guys? What building is that? Is that an important building? What is it? Anybody know? It's the temple. So the way the temple worked, this is the temple temple, but this is the temple precincts, right? This whole area is sacrosanct to the Lord, okay? Where, and so they're meeting up here. They're bringing this offering here. Do you, if you're a Jew, do you understand that playing games with God at the temple is perilous? Yes, they do. You did not come in with any shenanigans to the temple at your own peril. Where are they? You used to bring your, you would have brought your offerings into the priests here, but where are they bringing them? They're bringing them to the apostles here, saying that the church is now the temple, right? The, and we see the church function like the temple too. They're doing this knowingly in the presence of God. What do these actions reveal about their opinion of God? I mean, they could have possibly thought, yeah, we'll pull a fast one on the apostles. Did they believe they were fooling God? They couldn't have been. Would any idiot think, oh, I'm going to lie and God's going to believe a lie? Like, I'm going to fool God? No, you know better than that. What was their, how did God fit into their calculations? The answer is he didn't. This is what's called treating God with contempt. When the second commandment says, do not take the name, or the third commandment says, do not take the name of the Lord vainly. It means don't treat God like he's nothing. What did they do? They treated God like he was nothing. So let's put this all together. They wanted to boost their reputation through religious hypocrisy, not caring what God thought. Treating God with total contempt. The beauty that we see of how God's holiness makes this beautiful community, you can't have that with God's holiness. And there's a flip side to God's holiness. God's holiness is also perilous. 
God's holiness is also perilous. You do not trifle with God. Now, you might say, but isn't a death sentence a bit severe? Here's a few cautions. If we're sitting here saying, yeah, I hear that. You don't trifle with God. Perhaps they should have gotten a sternly worded rebuke. Seems more fair. Why would God strike them dead? Here's a few cautions. First of all, careful about making yourself a standard of justice. If you're going to pass judgment on God, I'm going to ask you where you got this standard of justice. Did you know that there are some cultures who believe that lack of integrity in telling a lie is the worst thing you could do? For instance, the Achaemenid Persians. It was a capital offense to tell a lie in that society. They would look at this and be like, finally somebody gets it. <laughs> right on. And the fact that we think God is overly harsh here might say more about how comfortable we are with alternative facts and corruption and lack of integrity in our society than about how God is harsh. Follow me? Second, don't confuse yourself with God. You are not God and God is not you. Okay? That what's right for you and wrong for you is not the same as God. Parents all know this. Why do you get to stay up later? That's not fair. Yes, it is. I'm dad. Quiet. Go to sleep. Okay? I mean, the, the, there's a lot of examples of this. Right? If I'm at the Rockies game, the pitcher's stinking up the joint. Can I go out and pull the pitcher? No, I would get put, thrown in baseball jail. Whatever that is. Only the manager can pull the pitcher. You say, wait, why does the manager get to pull the picture? He's the manager. Right? I hope this doesn't shock anybody. But God has the authority of life and death. We do not. It is not right for us to say, you lied to the Lord. Right? That's not our prerogative, but it is God's. Also, careful not to isolate this story from the rest of the story. Let's not forget that the main thrust of the Bible, the main thrust of the New Testament, the main thrust of Luke Acts is that Jesus, God himself, who we're right now thinking, that's harsh, sent his son to die for you and me to forgive his enemies. That's the main thrust, right? This is true. This happened. We have to reckon with this, but this isn't the main theme of the story. And also, and you guys aren't really going to like this, but I'm going to say it anyway, can't forget the theological context. From God's point of view, he transferred Ananias and Sapphira from starting down a very, very dark path to his presence. It is a given in our society that there is no face, fate worse than death. As a Christian, I have to disagree with that. There are several. One of which is introducing the work of Satan into this holy community. Right? That is what Peter says. It says, Satan has filled your heart, Right? You understand that, that the, the acts of Ananias and Sapphira threaten to totally undermine this beautiful community. But we might be saying, that, well, then it seems like God contains a contradiction within himself. Is his holiness beautiful or is his holiness perilous? Is it like yin and yang or something like that? Like God's a living contradiction? Well, it, here's part of the issue. And this is the real crux of it is that we don't know what to do with God's holiness. We have lost reverence 
for God's holiness. I might be saying holiness right now, and we don't even know what the word means. That's how much we've lost it. Holiness refers to God's unapproachable power, like the sun. Can't go near it, right? And, he, and only a fool. I'm going to fly straight for the sun, see how close I can get. No, it's unapproachable power. And there's a reason for this. The, a reason that we've lost reverence for God's holiness. First of all, our culture. The culture that, that all of us were raised in have, has taught us to laugh at the sacred. Okay? Like, I, I hear Christians all the time make kind of funny jokes about, like, sacred things. Right? I don't want to be a legalist about such things. But understand where that comes from. It comes from a lack of reverence for God's holiness. And pop culture, like we're, we're deluged with, with encouragement to laugh at everything, right? We are taught to hold nothing sacred because we are children of the Enlightenment and the post-Enlightenment. You know, slay the sacred cows, laugh at everything sacred. I, I'm a huge fan of Monty Python and South Park, as I know many of you are too. But realize what effect that has on the soul over time. It trains that reverence reflex out of us so that we forget how to do it. We don't know how to revere the holiness of God. But it's not just our culture. The church bears a great deal of responsibility. We have a tendency to tone down the holiness of God, this idea of unapproachable power. Right? It, it, it's, it's not what we want to lead with. We want to lead with grace and mercy, as, as we do at this church. But there's a danger. There's a danger that, that because you don't want people to be scared of God, and people have been taught to be af only afraid of God and not believe in his grace and mercy, that we push grace and mercy to the foreground and holiness further and further back until it's out of the picture. Right? It's not one or the other. It's both we can end up with a very distorted view of God that misses a sense of his holiness. When we look at the scriptures, we see the unapproachable power of God all over the place, right? Like, like, like sometimes I think theologians, not theologians, but kind of like the used cars, car salesman theologians are like, Take God for a spin. It's everything you want, nothing you don't. He just wants to be pals with you, you know, and doesn't reckon with the amazing power of God. When we look at the scriptures, we see that God is a consuming fire. We see God destroy armies through, through fire from heaven, through flood, through plagues of madness. Okay? He tells Moses, no man can see my face and live. His, his priesthood could not enter his presence. Only the high priest could go once a year with the right washings and everything else, and that with, with, a, with a, a line tied around his ankle in case he slipped up, was struck dead, and had to be dragged out. The holiness of God is all over the place in Scripture, and if we're to, to know God rightly, we have to reckon with it. And, and we're still in this tension. Well, which is it? Does God's holiness, is it beautiful and makes this beautiful community? Or is it perilous? The ocean is beautiful. I love the ocean. Partly because I grew up near it. But 
if you, I, I could literally sit on the beach and stare at waves breaking for hours and hours. It's like good for my mental health. It, when, when, if you watch those nature documentaries, which we love to, the ocean contains an endless amount of beauty when you look under the surface. Coral reefs, you know, schools of dolphins, those things in the deep that flash and was on that Will Smith documentary. It was awesome, right? The ocean is beautiful. You'd have a good time on the ocean. Boating, surfing, swimming, just chilling on the beach and looking at it, all sorts of things, right? And not only that, the ocean's a source of life. Not only for the creatures in it, but it, it's a foundation for the ecosystem of the entire planet. We lose the ecosystem of the ocean, like, there's no more water, there's no more food, there's no more nothing. Ocean's beautiful. Also, the ocean is so powerful, it could rip a super tanker in half. There's video of such things on the internet. Check it out. The, the, the power of the ocean is truly perilous. There are places in the ocean where the pressure is so great that if you or I were to go there, we'd be squashed like a grape in a couple seconds. The ocean is beautiful, and the ocean is perilous at the same time. Sailors have a saying, respect the sea. Okay? Yes, it's beautiful. Yes, we make our living on it, and it's also perilous. Treat it with respect. You see what happens when, when, the, when the, the people hear about the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Great fear fell on them all, appropriately so. This is the living God we're dealing with. You need to treat God's holiness with reverence, that is the message. We need to treat God's holiness with reverence. Not only does it create, does treating God's holiness with reverence, not only will it create a more beautiful community, but also we are not dealing with a lapdog, okay? We are dealing with the living God. Now, it is a simple fact that each and every one of us are longing for something to revere. Human beings are worshipers by nature. We will always look for something to revere. This is why people join movements. You know, people are confused by QAnon. It's weird, I'll give you that. But it makes them feel like they're part of something bigger. Right? They're looking for something bigger, something to give them meaning, something to revere. This is why so many of you kooky people will hike up to the top of a mountain, you know, and, and like just look out at this grand beauty of all the, of this gigantic, Giganticness that we have here in Colorado is so that we could be filled with reverence. We want something bigger than ourselves. And reverence is really important. Reverence motivates behavior. Okay? It, 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 it informs how we live our lives. There, a quick story for you. There was once a, um, a Roman general named Gaius Marius. Any Marius fans? Yeah. Nobody. Okay. Marius saved Rome from destruction on several occasions. He was called the savior of Rome, one of the most august figures they had. Anyway, a civil war didn't go his way, and he was on the run. He was an old man at this time, and he was hiding out in this little town, and, and there was a, a death sentence on his head. And any town that gave him shelter would also be punished. And so this town finds out, hey, Gaius Marius is in this little hut over there. What are we going to do? And this, this hard-bitten Roman soldier was like, I'll kill him, right? Now, a Roman soldier at this time would have killed many people. They fought a lot. So he goes into Gaius Marius, and Gaius Marius is old, overweight, and unarmed. He's sitting in the shadows with no protection in this house, and the guy walks in with his sword. 
And Gaius Marius just sits up, looks at him, and says, Fellow, do you dare to kill Gaius Marius? And the guy just kind of, his knees start knocking, he drops his sword, and he leaves. <laughs> and he says, I, I just couldn't do it. Why? He revered him. What you reverence motivates your behavior. Think about this. We revere work in this country, yeah? And what do we have? We have a nation of workaholics. Our, our number of hours works, go, worked goes up every single generation. We revere children and babies. We really do. And, and like one of the best ways to get the people on your side for a politician is say, do it for the kids. You got it, right? No problem. If you could demonstrate, right? Because we revere kids. We revere children. We revere babies. We revere the military. They're never short of funding. I'm just saying. When you have reverence for something, it motivates how you live. So when we have forgotten how to have reverence for God's holiness, I mean, think about the effect that has on our lives. Think about that, the effect that, that like, we're not motivated to tell the truth. We're like, ah, oh, God doesn't care. That doesn't matter. It does matter if we reverence God's holiness. Think about the effect on the church community if we started taking God's holiness a whole lot more seriously, both for its beauty and, never mind that, and its peril. How do we do that? Well, first of all, we need to revere God's word. Okay? A, a lot of the time we take sort of a cherry-pick approach to the scriptures. We'll skip over a passage like this and say, not relevant. Now, I'm not saying do this for devotions in the morning, but we've got to receive the hard parts of the word as equally weighty with the parts we enjoy and like. That's what it is to revere God's word. Also, and you know, back up the dump truck of scriptures on this, is to revere God's commands. Now, am I saying that we, go, we earn salvation by our good works? Not at all. Quite the opposite. Am I saying that if we obey God's commands, God loves us more? No. As we always say here, we don't want to obey God so that God will love us and save us. We obey God because God has loved us and save us, saved us. Right? But th this, some of you may have heard this idea that you don't need to listen to God's commands in Scripture, that it's all irrelevant, that we're not, quote, under law. Okay, so... It's okay to ignore the commands of the scriptures. Do you know what Jesus said? He said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And anyone who, who breaks the least commandment and teaches others to do so will be called least in the kingdom. He's not saying that you're saved by works. He's saying it matters that we need to revere God's commands. And also, and we see this very strongly in our text, is we need to revere God's image. That is... We need to treat other people with dignity. Proverbs 14, 31 says this, Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. And there are dozens of verses just like that. The way that you treat other human beings directly reveals how much you reverence the maker. Again, this is not saying that we're saved by our works. This is not saying that God loves you more if you do the right thing. It's saying we need to recover a sense of reverence for the holiness of God. Because God's holiness is beautiful 
and it is perilous. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when the uh, children are first being told about Aslan, they find out he's a lion. And one of the girls says, wait, Aslan is a lion? I I is he dangerous? And uh, the beavers who are leading them through Narnia say, well, if someone can look at Aslan in the eye without their knees knocking, they're either braver or dumber than most. And one of the other children says, wait, isn't he safe then? And the beavers laugh at him and say, no, he's not safe. Who said anything about safe? Now, he's not safe, but he's good. When we look at this text, what we see is that God's holiness, it is beautiful and it is perilous. We need to reverence his holiness. 